91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcastcentral. Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 183 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today is Kamal Southall. Kamal is an IT professional in downtown Cincinnati and a loyal Mercantile member who makes frequent use of our stacks, which is one of the reasons we have invited him to speak with us today, because we like to learn about our own collection from our members and their interests. So uh, we'll be discussing dust and old authors and old books and anything else that comes up. Thanks for joining us, Kamal. Oh, thank you for having me, Adam. So um, let's start, Kamal, with... Uh, your interests as a reader, and um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what drew you um, into our stacks uh, in the first place. Okay. Well, I am a I'm an omnivorous reader. Um, that's just my basic disposition. I've always been that way since I was a kid. Um, I remember when I was about eight years old. I badgered my mother into taking me to the Library of Congress during a trip to our family hometown of Washington, D.C. We lived in Cincinnati at the time, but I'm a Washingtonian by birth, and we would travel back and forth to visit family. And at the time, you had limited access, not to the full stacks of the Library of Congress, but limited access to some of the um, kind of pre-stacks, I guess you would say. Um, Today, it's the reading room only. So you have to go to the reading room, you have to put in a request, and they'll bring it down. But back then, I was able to sort of meander a little bit, which was kind of a boyhood dream come true because my dad worked at the Library of Congress. Uh, it was his job when he was working his way through university. So, um, yeah, so, so back in the mid-'80s, um, it was possible on request to get access to some of the stacks of the Library of Congress. Uh, that's since been closed. I think they stopped issuing stack passes like in the early 90s, sometime between 89 or 91. Um, but it was always a childhood dream of mine to go to the Library of Congress because I grew up with stories from my dad when he worked there, uh, showing books when he was working his way through college there. So and my both my mom and dad were book fiends, so, and they hated TV. Uh, they even hated PBS, which really made me feel sad because I always wanted to watch Sesame Street. 
So I just kind of grew up around books and just had a real love for books, and especially libraries as repositories of knowledge. So that's kind of what drew me here indirectly. Um, uh, a family friend of a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Egan, uh, works in this building, and I happened to run into him, and uh, we just had a conversation, and he asked me if I had gone up to the Mercantile Library yet. And I had heard of it, uh, along with the Lloyd Library, but I never had a chance to come up. So he said, oh, just come along, come on. And he brought me upstairs, and I was blown away by the smell of leather and old books and you know, just how cozy it all was. So I decided to get a membership and sign up there. So, Mr. Egan, if you're listening to this, I have you to thank my exposure to this wonderful institution. Sure. Sounds like a good uh, origin tale. Um, very fitting, I think. Um, I ask, actually, uh, what drew you to the Stacks? Because, uh, to be clear, not we have many members, and um, all of our members, I think, uh, have joined the Mercantile for different reasons, and they use it differently. Um, and so some people like to come here because they really just like to sit in the space in the reading room. Um, some people come here because they like to be um, made aware of certain um, new books that we tend to buy. Or they, they, they rely on us to um, present the newest uh, publications at our specially marked table in front, as well as in our uh, curated A-frame displays. Mm -hmm. um, but you, uh, you are uh, distinct from um, those people in that when you come to the Mercantile, you seem to go straight into the stacks looking for the older books. And it's, it often seems to us, who are very casually observing what goes on here, um, it seems to us like you're on some sort of... Um, uh, archaeological or uh, fishing expedition, you come back with finds, so finds. to speak. Yeah. Well, I um, I love the reading room, and sometimes when I come here, I do come here just to catch up on some of the journals, or even to just you know peruse through something I brought with me, or just to relax. But I um, I do have a real love for the stacks. Um, I, I have many intellectual interests, some of which are rather esoteric or strange or arcane or just bizarre and unusual. Um, and I have a great love for history and the history of knowledge. And um, for me personally, by exploring the past, that better helps me understand the present world. It better helps me understand my life, the lives of people around me, my city and my community, you know, country and the world. Uh, and I've always enjoyed perusing through old books. And you know, I, I do enjoy reading newer releases. Um, you know, I, I do like to see what's going on in the literary world today, but I'm par probably a little bit more partial um, 
towards older books mainly because they they sort of help me better understand the nature of the world that we're in. It, it's easier to be caught up in a present-day social context and sort of consuming or engaged in the culture of today. But what I've always found interesting is, okay, well, what created the culture of today? What created the sort of commonplaces that we use, the, the terms that we use, the ideas that we have on the tip of our tongues are floating around in our minds? Um, what built that edifice that we live in? So you have a fish swimming in water, completely unaware of the water, completely unaware of the medium that he or she is swimming through, um, because that's all a fish knows is the water until you yank it out and it's gasping for air. Um, then you throw the poor thing back in. I sort of feel the same way. If I, if I find myself too caught up and engaged in today's cultural conversation, I actually feel like I'm missing something because I, there's, there's precedents that build up to the cultural conversation of today. And by browsing through old library stacks, and the mercantile is not my only hunting ground. <laughs> uh, I'm, I've also been known to spend immense amounts of time uh, floating around Langsam Library, uh, UC's campus, uh, or Xavier's University uh, library stacks also. Um, whenever I go back home to visit my family, I drop by Catholic U and it, of course, the Cincinnati Public Library and here in the D.C. Public Library back in Washington. In fact, everywhere I go, I try to hunt out library stacks or old bookstores. But um, the Mercantile Library has an amazingly curated collection that's actually very unique. There are gems here that are very difficult to find elsewhere. And many of them are readily available on the shelves, on the stacks that all the library members have access to. And that's, that's unusual um, that, that, to, to a real degree. So I, yeah, I, I, do, I, I do like to read contemporary literature. Um, but when I go into a library, Maybe I am on a bit of an archaeological expedition, or maybe I am fishing for something. And sometimes there's a particular theme in mind or some personal research that I'm doing. Sometimes I'm just swimming and looking for serendipity to strike, which is how I landed on a couple of very interesting titles right now. Yeah. Well, um, I think one interesting thing that uh, distinguishes your quest in, through our stacks from archaeological expeditions and the like is, I think uh, books, um, because of their words, obviously, they're still living in a way that an artifact is not. No matter how um, vividly an artifact can uh, speak of the past, I think, um, with books you have both uh, material artifact and verbal artifact and, um, you know, language, um, uh, animates the material in your hand um, and I think brings the past back with an immediacy um, 
or I should say a more thorough or wide-ranging immediacy than necessarily a single material object, um, no matter how much you think you can picture a past civilization from, you know, right. a bowl or whatever you found. Right. The books you uh, have, are returning to the library today, um, one is, let's see, Delight by J.B. Priestley, a British essayist and playwright, and the other is... Beaumarchais and His Times by uh, Louis de Lomenay, where you'll have to pardon us listeners, um, no, no French. Yeah. Um, that's a really, I mean, unpacking, unpacking what you just said is, can lead us to some really amazing, uh, and to some really amazing grounds. I mean, there is something living to books. Um, which is why I think people are often drawn to them. You know, if you're watching TV or if you're watching a movie, the experience is partially mediated um, by the medium itself. So a good deal of your imagination is actually kind of sparked and prefed by the audio and visual um, display in front of you. With books you actually have to mentally reconstruct what's going on. Uh, whether it's a historical narrative or a biographical narrative or a fictional narrative, or even if it's a book about mechanics, um, you have to mentally model it. And that in itself, the, the act of the language sort of striking um, an imaginative process to you that is something that can perpetually bring books to life. Uh, so I thought that was a really um, cool thing that you noted. If you look at archaeology, uh, for example, take Near Eastern archaeology, you know, the archaeology of Babylonia or Mesopotamia or Persia or uh, ancient Egypt or any of the ancient cultures of the Near East. And down in the travel section, you walk in through the doors, you hang a left, and you go up the stairs to the stack there. There is actually a really great uh, section on ancient Near Eastern archaeology, interestingly enough. Um, a bunch of late 19th and early 20th century stuff. But one of the things that it massively expanded the modern view of ancient history wasn't just the recovery of... Um, bowls or knives or the excavation of temples and buildings and the scientific reconstruction of what life in various periods was on that basis, but also the uncovery of libraries, you know, massive archives and libraries buried under the sands uh, in Iraq or in Egypt, for example, or in Syria and excavating clay tablets, the you know, book medium of choice in the ancient Near East. And the discovery of these ancient archives opened windows up to our understanding of the past of those civilizations that were previously closed to us. Um, the same with Minoan civilization um, or the Mycenaean civilization. There's so much that has been found, but 
discovery of the linear A and linear B tablets and the effort to partially decipher them, you know, as that effort went forth and as it progressed, it opened up new vistas of understanding. There's just so much that you can get from reconstructing a chair or a tomb and its material grave goods. There are many things you can tell about a material culture, but it's an entirely different story when you stumble across a bunch of books from 4,000 years ago or letters or bills of sale, you know, or land charters, you name it. It opens up an entirely different window on that society. And the books here you know, have a similar function. If, if I'm curious about certain aspects of life before I was born, in the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1850s and the 1860s, stumbling across a book from those periods can tell me things that I would not be able to find out from um, examining aspects of the material culture from that period in an antique store, for example. Um, I could go to an antique store. I could come across artifacts from the early 19th century. It'll tell me all sorts of interesting things about that period of life. You know, I can hold things in my hand that someone may have used 150 years ago. But to read an essay from that period, or a journal entry, or a book of jokes, or a cookbook, mm -hmm. that opens up an entirely different window into the past, an entirely different level of understanding. I think it humanizes uh, the past. So if books are sort of living objects, and if they're sort of, in a sense, metaphorically speaking, but if there, if there is a certain analogy there to a living being in a sense, I would think a book is sort of like a gatekeeper um, and also maybe a doorman to another era. Yeah. It's, I mean, when you open books, old books, um, books that are not commonly um, in circulation or promotion um, in bookstores um, being republished and promoted by presses, there's a sense of... Um, of uncovering a former culture's life's breath. Yeah. It, it, it moves again, it moves in you. Um, whereas, mm -hmm. and not to knock um, archeology span or the material study of history too much here, not to belabor the point, but um, because I do believe in the afterlives of objects, you know, I think there's right. a spiritual power to material remnants, absolutely. But, um, there's something about like the entombed voice being freed of a book, and then because it lives in you, you know, it's mm -hmm. not something you hold, it's not something you look at, and um, you know, many uh, uh, material relics of previous times they are not available to anyone. You have to go to a museum, you know, you can't study them, handle them. Um, you'll learn about them, but you don't encounter mm -hmm. them. But you know, in the books, there's. There's something else there. Yeah, you can hold it. You can read it. The words of the author um, are playing in your mind. You, and and it, there's a weird sort of identification, you know, in the sense that as you're reading it, you're not hearing the author's voice. You're hearing your own 
voice in your mind. So yeah, they, they do leave, live in you in, in a very real way. And, uh, and as, I mean, even as objects, uh, as material objects themselves, they're, they're also very interesting because there's a lot that you can tell about an old book just as a material artifact itself. You found these two books, which you've brought back today, just to take them as examples because they're right. your recent um, selections, should we say. Yeah, well, Beaumarchais and His Times by Louise de Lomenay, and I'm probably butchering the French as well. Uh, if my wife were here, she would probably definitely correct me. But uh, it, I stumbled across this just surfing. I sometimes when I come in the stacks, I I sort of have a, have a mini mission. There's a specific genre or a section I want to go to. Rarely a specific author, but sometimes or a subject matter. And sometimes I just go and roam and find something that sort of speaks to me. Um, and Beaumarchais, I honestly had no idea who he was or what his significance was. But there's something about the book. My, my eyes came across it that just sort of reached out to me. I wondered, okay, who is this person and what's his significance? And, uh, I, and I will often do this. I will find a book by someone who seems obscure to me and start reading through it and then try to find out more about their life because, you know, you have a situation where someone may have been significant in their own time, and they may certainly be significant now to specialists or people in the know. I'm certainly not a specialist or a person in the know. So as someone who's just you know, a layperson in the general public, there are so many influencers of culture's past and culture's present. And you, you use the term... Um, like a cultural inheritance. And there are specific cultural inheritances that various cultures and societies um, take up or receive as their heritage, but then there are larger ones that are actually global. So you do find people who are global influencers and whose thoughts and work resonate to this day with us, even if we're unaware of them. And it turns out Beaumarchais was one of those types of people. So I'm, I'm sure there are many people out there who have um, watched Looney Tunes cartoons when they were kids, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Uh, and there's one in particular, The Rabbit of Seville. It was a short released, if I remember correctly, I think it was January 1950. Um, but it's definitely released in 1950 as a cinematic cartoon short. And then in the age of mass TV broadcast, it, along with all the other Looney Tunes shorts, were endlessly rerun through our childhoods. So Saturday morning cartoons, you turn on, and there's Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd engaged in their perennial struggle. So The Rabbit of Seville was one of those wacky episodes in which Bugs Bunny... Um, torments Elmer Fudd, who is in turn trying to kill him, and um, they take this adventure, 
you know, one trying to chase the other, the other one trying to escape the other, and it ends up in an operaic finish. Well, it turns out the Rabbit of Seville, which you often find, bizarrely enough, with especially Looney Tunes, there's all sorts of sometimes quite classical cultural references in those cartoons. It's a reference to Beaumarchais' The Barber of Seville. Um, and after that, The Marriage of Figaro. He had a, what was the Figaro trilogy uh, as a playwright. Uh, he wrote three plays around this individual Figaro. The Marriage of Figaro is most famous due to Mozart, because Mozart wrote The Marriage of Figaro, I think around 1786, or 1787 or so. But Beaumarchais' version predated Mozart's by a decade, and he was the actual uh, inspiration for the story. So I knew of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro once I got older, got in college, you know, literary course, you know, literature courses and history, and you know, okay, well, there's this, you know, composer Mozart composes opera. It's a comic opera of sorts, but I still had no idea who Beaumarchais was. The Looney Tune short was actually based on the Beaumarchais original presentation of the story. It turns out, actually, unpacking and unraveling a little further, Figaro was actually an authorial stand-in. It was a semi-autobiographical um, play. The Barber of Seville and then The Marriage of Figaro and then the third one, whose name um, escapes me. But Figaro was essentially modeled on Beaumarchais. Uh, so as a kid, I just remember Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and someone singing, Figaro, Figaro. And it was a funny sounding name as a kid. And then you get older and you discover, okay, well, this is a reference to an opera by Mozart, and actually it's not. It's a reference to Beaumarchais primarily. But that's just one example of how someone who seems to me to be an obscure writer and an obscure cultural figure who I'm completely unaware of actually has a lingering influence, but it gets even more interesting. Uh, because as I read the book and as my curiosity sort of blossomed, I discovered all sorts of interesting things about Beaumarchais. He's very much the American Revolution's success has a great deal owed to Beaumarchais because Beaumarchais was actually one of the individuals who initially lobbied the King of France to lend support to the American revolutionaries and at one particular point in his career, he was an active gun runner and an arms smuggler running arms that he purchased in Spain and in other places to the Americans. So actually, some of the, the military success of you know, George Washington and other colonial generals very much had what, what were reliant on arms that Beaumarchais provided but it turns out his influence 
goes much further. I mean, he's, a, he's amazingly influential in early 19th century French literature, um, and that influence continues. He inspired Mozart, who's in the Germanic world, of course. Um, Goethe, one of, um, Goethe actually wrote um, a play around an attempt of Beaumarchais, if I remember correctly, to, basically it was a failed marriage attempt um, that had some diplomatic overtones. So at the time he was very influential and people knew him all across Europe and people knew his literature. And after his death, he remained influential. And the country of the United States of America, to the degree that the French aided the American Revolution, um, a good deal of that actually was Beaumarchais' responsibility. Turn out, unpacking it further, he was a secret agent and spy for two separate kings. Then, as when that last king was about to lose his head, he was very much um, an influence in the French Revolution. Even more bizarrely enough, his Figaro trilogy actually was a cultural and intellectual kind of seminal pre-influence of the revolution because when, especially when the marriage of Figaro uh, was first released and acted out on stage, um, there's a, the, the criticism of the aristocracy that would seem to have been inherent in it, the audience actually got the message very well. And Napoleon Bonaparte actually, um, Bonaparte actually said that in those three plays of Beaumarchais, he said that they were the revolution acted out beforehand or something to that effect. That basically, it was an immense cultural influencer um, that really helped, um, that really helped create the revolutionary spirit within the French public and was very much part of the cultural and intellectual conversation of the age, that these sacrosanct figures of the aristocracy were being criticized, albeit in a veiled way, in Beaumarchais' plays. So that's um, by just randomly picking a book off the shelf, um, a biography of someone whom I wasn't aware just really to read it and find out who is this person and what is, what's this person's story, I end up discovering a lot of the sort of hidden untold stories behind things that we take for granted, including the American Revolution. Yeah. So it's interesting you've, you have uh, revealed to us and I'm sure many of our other members who didn't know that this figure or you, I should say you've discovered that this figure, uh, this person, historical person, Beaumarchais, has had a long secret influence on uh, American cultural identity. On the one hand, he is in part, you could say, responsible for our fixation on guns, and in part responsible uh, for our fixation on cartoons um, to great American interests. Yes. Um, <laughs> Elmer Fudd, the perennial American <laughs> hunter. Yeah, so the the long 
invisible hand of Beaumarchais is with us. Um, Kill the rabbit. <laughs> let's talk uh, a little bit about um, the other book, um, Priestley's Delight, uh, because it's here, and uh, also because I've actually um, read some of those essays. So... Anyway, um, the impression I get is that he's pretty well-known in Britain, not so well-known here, and uh, I happened on a few of his essays in an anthology, um, and then you, I'm not sure how you discovered him, so I'd, I'd like to hear about that and um, anything else you'd like to yeah, say. Yeah, certainly. Well, in Priestley's case, as opposed to Beaumarchais, I was aware of Priestley. Um, I had not read much of Priestley, but I had read a bit. Um, I was more aware of him as an intellectual figure. Um, but again, I wasn't aware of his significance. You know, I, I read an essay or two of his, and, um, and, and you know, I was aware. There was a recent BBC... Uh, well, no, the BBC production was actually a few years ago, but there was actually a, a recent full um, release of, um, of an Inspector Calls in 2015, um, and that's a play, right? It was it was a play, yeah. And uh, the 2015 version was um, made for TV, um, as basically a, a TV movie. Um, but beyond the fact that Priestley was the author of Inspector Calls, and beyond a couple of essays of his that I read, I, I was more familiar with him through connection with other people. Uh, like Graham Greene, um, like George Orwell. So again, he, he was a name of someone I read a little bit, um, saw that he had an influence on, on the culture, but wasn't really aware of the degree to which he really was, mainly because you know, I, there are, you know, the British are much more aware of Priestley as a writer and a thinker. Um, I was aware of Man in Time, which is a fascinating book. It's an amazingly, I find it kind of bizarre, but bizarre in a really nice way, I guess you could say. Um, but what I wasn't aware of is the themes in Man in Time, actually, they really characterize a lot of Priestley's work. So I was aware of Priestley, and I wanted to read something by him and every once in a while I'll, I'll pick out a different essay collections so I just decided to pick out Priestley's Delight and give it a read I'm really glad that I did because it exposed a side of Priestley that I wasn't aware of Delight is full of delightfully snarky and curmudgeonly grumpy essays on the things that bring him delight and it almost seems like he, he, he adopted this sort of figure of this rural Yorkshire country gentleman whose identity is rooted in grumbling. Um, well, that's actually how he frames the book in, at the very beginning, and he carries it through. Uh, but it's a sort of apology and an explanation to those he loves and those he doesn't. Um, that He's not completely a curmudgeon. There are things that bring him delight. But the thing... The, each of the essays, and they're really like small snapshots, and they have the feel of being spontaneous snapshots, but if you actually look at them very closely, they're actually really well wrought. 
uh, as as far as an essay, as far as a small essay is is, is concerned, um, they're fairly well crafted and actually very methodical. But he, when you when the re, when you engage them, when you're reading them, it very much feels as if he's just sort of rattling and it's off the cuff. Um, observation of how delightful being on a cruise is, how delightful opening an old book is, um, how delightful going to bed at a certain time is. So it's a very humorous collection, um, and it gave me a few laughs and a few chuckles, but it also gave me a cause to dig a little bit more into, you know, Priestley's broader role, and I was, again, a little surprised that he was far more influential than I thought that he was. Um, as a government propagandist, for example, during World War II, Priestley gave a series of propaganda um, radio shorts. According to Graham Greene, you know, authority no less than Graham Greene, uh, Priestley's um, wartime propaganda pieces were second in importance to Winston Churchill's himself. And that's really significant. Um, you know, the, 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 he had that sort of um, cultural cachet. He had that sort of influence on the, on the British public that when he spoke on the radio, counseling the English public their, through their way through the London Blitz, for example. And I, his influence, I guess, was even greater after the Battle of Dunkirk, from what I've read. Um, that he was taken very seriously. I guess that's this avuncular, uncle-like character. Um, so, and that, was, that will certainly encourage me to read more Priestley in the future. Well, would you mind reading for us a little selection of your choosing? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Um, on page 14, there's a short has, I mean, it's barely a page and a half Smoking as worship, and I'll just read an excerpt. Quote, I am told that in one of the ruined temples deep in the jungle of Central America, there is a carving more than 2,000 years old showing a Mayan priest smoking a pipe. It seems that the Mayas, bless them, used the smoke of tobacco as an offering to their sun god, who, more delicate in his taste than most gods, relished this fragrant offering. So the Mayan priest, puffing away, was engaged in worship. And for more than 35 years, without knowing it, I have been a belated Mayan priest, following the ancient ritual of my order. Light Virginian and dark burly, strong Piroque and entrancing Latakia. I have sacrificed them all by the pound and at monstrous prices to the sun god. Possibly I have also sacrificed digestion sleep, eyesight, nerves, and a final career as a grand old man. I have no regrets. The sun god has been pleased, and I have known solace and sometimes delight. There are those who call this a filthy habit. They should take a look at some of our other habits. And he goes on for about another half of a paragraph, but that's sort of par for the course. Um, There's definitely a strong vein of humor bit snarky, a bit curmudgeonly, but offered in a friendly way. That's probably 
as good a place as any to end, yeah. right? <laughs> um, well, thanks, Kamal. Yeah, certainly, Adam. It's our Where's... pleasure to have you here today and uh, to talk. It was a pleasure and an honor. Um, well, that was Kamal Southall, and um, my name is Adam Kosian. I uh, am the assistant collector and membership coordinator here at the library. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, we encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app to The 12th Story. We're available on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud. And if you like listening, please tell your friends or tweet at us um, at Mercantile Lib. Today's uh, podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks again to our guest, Kamal. Um, the 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDiarmid. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a good week.